Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Joe Lynch's new action horror film, Mayhem. The film tells the story of Derek Cho, an attorney who is unjustly fired after being framed by a co-worker. But when a strange virus that makes people act out their worst impulses infects the law office, Derek is forced to fight for his job and his life. In addition to Mayhem, Mr. Lynch's credits include the feature films Everly and Nights of Bad Astem, the miniseries 12 Deadly Days, an episode of the series Saber, and the short films Raya Yarborough, Silent Night, and Venom, Truth and Journalism. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Lynch spoke with director Joe Carnahan about filming Mayhem. During their conversation, Mr. Lynch discusses his life as a working-class filmmaker, how he integrates his iPhone into his directorial approach, and the influence of Paul Brickman's risky business on the movie. There's a few people here. All right. I love you all. Uh, Let me just say that this is a dream come true, uh, that I would be sitting in front of uh, tens of you uh, (laughs) in in the hallowed halls of DGA1. I know. Like when you when you become a member and you sit in this room for the first time, you have that dream. You have that dream of, oh my God, I'm gonna see myself with a bad mustache on the big <laughs> screen one day. By the way, how about Joe Lynch might have had the performance of this movie? Well, I, <laughs> wow. I the best is gonna be when you hear this back on the podcast. It's just gonna be that like. <laughs> uh, Fun, fun fact, the reason, so we shot this movie in Belgrade, Serbia, lovely Belgrade, Serbia, uh, and for everyone who's here who's a filmmaker, I highly recommend it. Uh, we had, you know, why? Low budget. Why, do you, why do you recommend Belgrade, Serbia? Because people love making movies, like, n- like nowhere else that I've ever been. Uh, Versus communist oppression, yes, I think. Well, no, it, the diff- it's the difference between, like, uh, you know, a grip who goes, I'm going to lunch, and... A Serbian grip who's like, so what do you want? Do you want the you're going for like a Bertolucci or you're going for something that's a little more verite? What what do you want? And this is from the grips, oh, you know. Wow. So the fact that you, you know, like these people are so excited that they get to they get to do a job halfway around the world that they get to make decisions that are going to be seen globally by tens of people in the DGA theater, like that's tens amazing. of people. You know, that's that to me was so exciting. And you know, who doesn't want to work with people who really want to be there on set? You know, so that's that's my entire crew and cast. But um, when we made the movie, uh, you know, we were shooting it in Serbia and we had a very strict limitation on how many people uh, we can bring from the States or even from London. So uh, we literally ran out of English speaking Serbian people, uh, actors to be in the film. Uh, So we needed an IT guy and I couldn't have a guy who's like, Oh, my servers are down. Oh, too bad for you. You know, like I needed, I needed someone who's going to be that typical American douchebag, and I can only think of one person. Who would be? Uh, the but, it, but it was American totally douchebag. out of necessity. It was, 
<sighs> fine, I'll do it. It really was an excuse to just hang out with my two favorite people in the world, Steven and Samara, and also have a great porn stash on film. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, so so let me let me ask the the first of the formal questions. Okay. What how did the script come so is, is it's Matthias Crusoe who wrote the script. So how did this come to you? Uh well, you know that, you, that you know that saying. You know when the script landed on my desk, right? right. right. Most times, no one has a fucking desk. Oh, sorry, boops. Okay. Uh, no one has you a desk. Say, if you can't say uh, fucking the DJ theater, we're in for a long night. Well, after days. you've seen about five hundred of the f bombs yeah. happening in this yeah, movie, exactly. uh, I think I've topped Don a Day of the Dead uh, for the <laughs> amount of f bombs. But um, when uh, when I got this script, I was literally it literally landed on my desk in a cubicle in a corporate job. That's exactly what happened. Uh, I was working a wait corporate gig. Wait a minute. Gig. Wait a minute. That's insane. So wait, uh, when did this? When did it happen? Like when did the script actually? Continue? Come on, Joe. You know that the days of no, development Joe, deals and residuals and you it's know over. in between projects right now, those are all gone. You know, like and I'm a working class filmmaker, and this is more a hobby than it is something that I can sustain myself. So. You know, when I have these productions, I treat them like it's like heaven. It's like summer camp. It's like but the way that the, the industry is, it's really hard to be able to sustain yourself uh, career-wise doing this. So uh, I had finished uh, my last film, also in Serbia, uh, Everly with Sama Hayek. So, uh, so I get this script, and I'm in, I'm in this job, and I, I am not happy with, with where I am in life, but I have to pay the bills. I have to make rent. And when I read this script, you know, all the movies that I've done before, I can't even said that, but, you know, the movies that I had done before have all been based on a want. I wanted to make a splatter movie from the 80s, and that was Wrong Turn 2, and I wanted to make uh, the, the, uh, the sequel to Goonies that we could never have with Knights of Bad Aston, and I wanted to make my loving homage to <laughs> Lars von Trier and Die Hard with, with, uh, with Everly. Yeah, that really did happen. Um, but those were all based on a want, because I love movies, and I love the feeling that I get when I'm watching a movie, and to be able to replicate that feeling and kind of exp and, and share it with other people, but it's a want. This, when I read this script, it was the first time that I ever felt a need to make this movie, because I, I so related to the character, I so related to the situation he was in, and the plight he was in, and as I'm reading it, I'm going like, he's just a struggling artist that needs to be set free! Right. And, that, and that really, that really got me. So, 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 brother. So, so, okay. So, so, edify. So, post Everly, you go back to work, work, and you're doing what at that time? Producing commercials for a network. You okay. Know? And it, it was it was fine. I got to still I, I got to make cool commercials about the Terminator and and stuff like that. So it was still kind of like yay, but it just the thing that that I couldn't really gel with the corporate life is the that kind of world of passive aggression of, of the corporate life well it's just you know like the passive aggression you know the, the the fact that everyone would rather say let's discuss or i'll put a put a pin in that or uh you know like let's sidebar this conversation no one wants to be honest no one wants to say no no one wants to get in trouble no one wants to go to hr so everything is very homogenized so and you, sterile so you, know? you had a very you had a very kind of this wasn't some sort of kind of ephemeral connection to the, this particular world, you were very kind of... I was in it. In it. So I got to, like, when so it was Stephen all Young's said and done... So Derek Cho, you're very much that guy. I, I am Derek Cho. Okay. Just a lot less sexy than, than Derek. <laughs> but also, I got to look back now at the time that I did that corporate world, and I got to say it like, well, no, I was like uh, Cameron Crowe when he was writing Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I embedded myself. I went deep cover. Right. Yeah, it was research. Right. Yeah, no, it really wasn't okay, research. So, okay, so now take it. So you get the script... You read it, you're like, 
I I feel a connective like I I need to make totally. How do you then set about? You, do you go pitch yourself to producers or what happens? No, they saw Everly and they thought of me. So I just went in and said, I know this. And I, and I said, like, I don't want to make this, you know, I don't want to I didn't want to go in and go, it's office space meets the purge. I didn't want to really. But it very much is. It, listen, no, well, it, it I is, see like, I see like five. Like you I can said, see one that. of my questions was like, it's a mash of it. It's like 28 days later, the purge die hard. Uh, I also had what I have in here. Uh, you you uh, called the the big one out. Uh, uh, what, what was it? it was uh, Game of uh, Death? Oh, Game of Death. By Which the way, if you who if, saw Game of Death, it's like the idea he has to go through the mug. Okay. The, the mug very smart the, guy the mug that Derek has. Yes. By the way, that woman sitting with him—that's the guy you want to marry. If you're not married already, that's the guy. No, but it's very much it is. It's it's and I didn't realize this until Joe told me this that his that that Derek's mug was the color. Of it's totally that, and that was Stephen's idea. Because Steve, when really, Stephen read the script, he goes, "Dude, this is Game of Death," and I'm like. Yes, it is. And and then it was just something that was stuck in our head. And without making it be too much of an homage, he just thought, like, what if the mug was like Bruce Lee's mug, uh, like Bruce Lee's suit in Game of Death? And I'm like, sold. Now, now you said something to me outside, which I would not have asked you. But now that you said this to oh, me, no. I must ask you. So describe to me your directing style in this, because... Uh, there's a tremendous amount of very inventive, very clever kind of camera work, and it's really kind of linked, and, it's, and it has this great kind of symmetry. And you said to me outside what, which I think would be fascinating to anybody here as a director, which I, I just find this, it's a mark of a pro when you can say something like this and not sound like a douchebag. So, wow. Thanks for teeing it up, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like whatever I say is going to be like, what an ick. Uh, no, I, again, like I was saying before about, you know my love for cinema and the and I'm so kind of infused with the language of cinema like I walk around in life with one eye closed so that I can have all those Sam Raimi montages when I make breakfast like that's just how my brain works and when I've made all my other films I'm always constantly referencing other movies not to be like oh I have to do my Chris Nolan shot now but when I can say to my DP like you know that moment in the dark night when he's got his back to him and you know like when I can describe shots like that it's so much easier to communicate to other artisans who are just very aware of that kind of language so in the past I had always you know copiously shot listed and storyboarded whenever I could animatic when I had the time or the money or you know or could get a favor out of somebody this was the first movie, and, and partially due to necessity, where we only had five weeks of prep. We literally got booted from America to Serbia, and it was just like, go. Hit the ground running and go. And, you know, by doing that, it made me go, you know what? What if I was infected with the ID7 virus? What if I saw this movie and, and directed it as if I was infected? So, you know, much like James Franco in The Disaster Artist, where he, you know, acted as Tommy to, uh, throughout the whole film. No, did he really? I, did he? Yeah, no, he totally did. Oh, God. Now, you want to go see it? No. Let's go after. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I, I would do a cursory shot list, and then I would hand it to my, you know, whether it was the producer or the first AD or whatever, and I'd never look at it again. Because, as we all know, when you're on set and you have a shot list, you know you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're not going to get five. You're not going to get 11 or that dash or that, that you know, special, that one special shot. You know what's up. You know, th there's, always that, you know, there's always those babies that you have to kill, whether it's time or circumstance, the weather sucks, the actor sucks. Like, there's just always things that get in your way. So every morning you look at that shot list when you're in the van, you're ready to shoot, and you're like, no, oh, I can't hope I get this. I hope I... And you then you get back in the van at the end of the day and go, oh, that sucks, and not 
not going to get that and going right. to throw it out. But it, but isn't it interesting? It's like it's like because you don't have the. It's funny. I was watching, uh, and I'm a big I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big David Fincher fan. But I was watching Mindhunters, his his Love Netflix show. show, and and there's fantastic things in it. And yet I realize this is Fincher shooting TV. This isn't Fincher that can do 42 takes. No, and, and you know what I mean. Yeah. And really refine what Fincher does brilliantly. This is Fincher going. Yeah. But one of the things that yeah, Fincher and not that does, it's bad. No, it, no, but no. It, but it's but it's. I think what's interesting about what you're saying is like there is a. I've always said this. I never want to be part again as a director of a film that takes seventy days to shoot. I, I just you don't, don't need it. You don't like. Yeah. There's something meticulous it's, about it's a it's a it's a propulsion killer. Yeah, you know the the thing about Fincher that I admire, especially in Mindhunters now, is like watching it is when you watch a Fincher shot, he uses the characters and the actors' movement to move the camera. Yeah. Now you do that if you try to shot list that shit like you're going to end up disappointed because the actor's going to go this way and he's going to zig instead of right. zag. So you have to be somewhat instinctual with that. So that's what I did every day on no, set. Brother, the, I, I went with my instinct. The idea of the ID7, was that something you felt? Because we all know, like, as directors, it's like, you know, Scorsese said, well, oh, I shot Goodfellas way at Gangster would shoot a movie. You know, yeah. I'm going to freeze frame him this. Like There's something really, and you mentioned me outside, very liberating about that. So oh, my God. Describe, you know, versus something like Everly, which I know you had to... Uh, oh, we rigorously shot, the hell shot out of that. list, which, oh, yeah. by the way, it, it, which is a testament because it's a very refined, um, uh, gorgeous, uh, choreographed. You know, which is which is it's not that it's any different with mayhem, yeah. but there's it's certainly a, different a difference. Yeah. yeah, the beats are very different. So, how does that for you directorially? How does that free you? Uh, oh my god! I got in the van at the end of every night and went hell yes! I like I walked away feeling like a like a genius because. We would have to, you know, there's that pressure, there's that, you know, that butterfly in the, you know, in the stomach feeling that after you block everything, you're just like, uh-oh, now what, you right. know? But thankfully, I had worked with my DP from Everly again on Mayhem, so we had a shorthand, and he had a shorthand with the entire Serbian crew, so we got to move so fast. We had two cameras on these Ronin rigs, so... I could come, I can have a dolly if I wanted, I can have a steady cam if I wanted, if I wanted to have the camera all the way down, Greg Tolan style, like looking up within minutes. It wasn't like, well, we gotta pull the tra you know, the rails out or we gotta dig a hole. No, it was like instantaneous. By the way, who, who just got the Greg Tolan reference? I'm just gonna show hands. We're we're Everybody we're hanging out with this guy afterwards. Everybody get it? I, just, okay, tell me what he shot. Thank now you. that's the right answer. By the way, this, like this guy who said I got it is the only King. guy that got it. All right, whatever. I know, brother. You never know. Dude. You just gotta. You, sometimes you gotta poke the. You gotta poke the bear. You know. But that's really why, like, every day felt so exciting because I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know what was gonna. Like, I knew all the challenges I had. I had time and I had a lack of money, and you know, that's always gonna be your, you know, your biggest hurdle. And to be able to like hand off this kind of rudimentary shot list. Sometimes it was yesterday's shot list, uh, but it was a shot list nonetheless so that the producers go like, oh, okay, yeah, it seems to have a handle on things, yeah, yeah. But then was, I would so throw it all bit, out. Was that a bit of pageantry, brother? Were you kind of doing that as like a, as like, a like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow these kind of, th these dictums, but they didn't really mean... You know what well, I mean? It's, like it's the knew, worst thing you, you can do where like... consciously knew you're, you're handing off a shot list as, as nothing to do with the day's work, you know, you're taking the piss... More or less, you're being like, eh, well, no, it, it, like, well, thankfully, my producers were really cool. But at the same time, if I was one of the producers and my director <laughs> comes up to me and says, like, fellas, I don't have a freaking idea what I'm doing today. It's going to be great. 
you're gonna crap your pants. Right. So I needed to show that I at least had a, a clear basic idea of what I was gonna do, but nine times out of ten, Steve and I would throw that shot list out and just go, What's what's that Barton Fink feeling inside so right now? So the Barton Fink. I got a lot of writers that give me Barton Fink. I get, I can get a Fink like thing from anybody. That's right. So wait, so so wait, wait, so the beginning is uh it seems to me the transition from Derek to being kind of the work of drone mm-hmm. jerk off to the corner office guy was handled with, with, is, is very slick. Mm-hmm. So was that something, was it simply like, we'll just use the elevator doors closing as a transition? Because it felt uh, uh, very uh, 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 choreographed in a way to kind of, as time cuts go, to be very... To that, be very... that was something that I came up with on the morning of we were driving up, and I'm like, how great would it be is if I showed his... I mean, it's in the script in a way, but it wasn't as kind of seamless using the body wipes, using the elevator door, even just kind of looking at a wall for a second and letting the CG kind of like do that seamless transition. But what I did was, and weirdly enough, the uh, the main investor would just happened to be there that day. So in the morning, we had the elevator and we started working this all out with now everybody working, in that elevator. Is this a working elevator? This isn't a No, set. God, no, no. It was a box with a bunch of Serbian people in it. You know? Okay. And all of Nothing wrong with nope, a box with a bunch of Serbian all. people in it. You can make I, a lot I know of money some really internationally fine Serbian with a box, box with people. Yeah, uh, but we uh, and and the other thing too is like nine of them didn't know how to speak English, so I had to. I had, there was a game of telephone where it was like from me to my first AD to my second AD to my second second who spoke Serbian, and then by the by the time it got to them, they're like, "So we are going to uh, shit in bed." Like I'm like, "Where did that come from?" But so what we did, what I had to do was because I knew that there had to be these exact moments. I would shoot a shot, shoot it off my iPhone, off Video Village, and then I would run over to my laptop, put it in my laptop on Final Cut Pro, and then by lunch, I had the entire scene cut so that, and then I realized like, you know, there's about five cuts in that whole sequence. I realized that sequence four didn't have the right body wipe. So I was able to say like right there, like, oh, we actually have to go back and we have to redo this one part so that we have that one guy that walks past so that it would all be seamless. And it all cuts, you know, but if I didn't have my iPhone on the video village to import it into Final Cut Pro so that when everyone went to lunch, I'm sitting there tapping away. And by the time they came back and the investor was like, you, you cut the movie already? And I'm like, yep. And he never showed up again. That's it. Like he, like he just went like, you got this, and and never showed up again. You know, so it was a testament to just kind of going with the flow. I don't think I would have been able to get that without just not being stuck to that shot list where I'm like, I have to get this and I have to. And, get this. and did you feel okay? So the budget was was what? Uh, two point four. Two point four million. Yeah. So did you feel a certain amount of liberation from, you know, it's like okay, we're on the hook, but we're not on the hook for, you know. 20 million on the hook for, you know, well, I two mean, and a half. no matter what, I, look, again, A, it's my lowest budget movie. Um, but at the same time, I was halfway around the world, you know, and I wasn't tethered to like my first movie was with Fox. So every decision I made, even like, should I have the omelet this morning? And it would have to be vetted by like three or four <laughs> execs. Um, here they just implicitly trusted me. And because I had such goodwill with the the crew, because again, I had worked with the you know this crew on on Everly, and when we went around the world, basically kind of trying to figure out where we were going to shoot it, and we were kind of tax we were tax break dodging or tax break hunting in a way, and we went to Pittsburgh and it was 15 days, and we went to you know New Orleans and it was 16 days, and it was Vancouver 17. And I'm like I, I can't do this on 17 days, so 
I reluctantly were like, I was like, maybe we should try Serbia. And my producers were like, no. And then we made a phone call. And the first thing they said was, oh, you mean the crazy guy who had all blood from last film? We actually have a, a barrel of blood. If you need to come back and use barrel of blood. And I, and I just went like, I just saved a thousand bucks. Like we're already set, you know? It's like, I'm already thinking economically. But they gave us 25 days. And like knowing that, and knowing that both both myself and Steve had worked with this crew already, they oh, were so just it was a lot of the point. Everly guys. It was the it was same. it was a lot of the Everly crew, right. and we got to promote them too. So there was also a great sense of like oh, ownership. Great. You know, like our art director became the production designer, and a lot of the assistants became keys, and everyone just worked so in tandem and so well together that. I mean, they were almost ahead of me at times, you know, and but I needed that because we had a lot of stuff to cover in a very short amount of time. Right. So, okay. So, but this is, let me ask you this, uh, uh, the political climate in this country right now, mm -hmm. how much of that kind of factored into what you were doing on Mayhem? Was it just, a, was it just a kind of a, a happy accident or was it like, were you aware of like the, the disastrous turn that we were taking. Oh, I mean, God. I, I, and, 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 because try I think being it's out of the country and looking at it from, like, outside in when everyone's, like, they look at you and go, Trump? Really? Like, right. everybody. Everybody's looking the at Serbians you. Serbians like, are like, you guys are schmucks. Yeah. They're yeah. looking at, like, me and Steve and some of the other, you know, Americans just going, schmucks. Um, well, funny enough, the thing that got affected most by this, I mean, aside from the fact that the boss is a, you know, a conniving evil CEO turned leader, his aspirations, I would even tell Stephen Brand, I'm like, you want to be president? And that would immediately make him go like, I've got this. Um, but the thing that changed the most from the movie, and, you know, we shot this in March of 2016, so Trump was already gaining momentum, and it was more of like the, it'll never happen to, and... Right. The climate in the world at the time that we were kind of coming up with, like when I first met Steven, and the way that the script was, uh, the script is the ending. The ending of the of the film is in the script. And uh, but when when Steven and I met, and he and I both are huge fans of you know '70s cinema and how you can get away in the, at least in the '70s you can get away with those ambiguous endings where you can have the dour endings, you can have the parallax view endings. And he said to me, and I, this really blew me away, he goes, what if Derek takes the gig? And he went on this 45-minute rant about how Derek should take the gig and went on about like all the politics of what it's like to be an Asian-American in, 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 in corporate America and how there's this thing called the Oriental Ceiling. I mean, we, do, we can go on for hours about this shit. But he really had this compelling idea about what if we pull the carpet out from the, under the audience and show them like what it's like to be corrupted. And it was fascinating. And I went like, that could actually work. And the other thing too that I thought would be, that would work well is all I'd have to do is augment a couple takes. I shoot it the same exact way, but instead of him saying I quit, he sits down and takes a flute of champagne and looks right in the barrel of the camera and the VO says, so I took the gig. And that's it. And it was something that we kept in the back of our pocket the entire time. Now, did you have that? Did you shoot that? Yeah, ending? absolutely. Wow. So we shot that version. So what, what prevented you from saying, to hell with it, we're going to do that? So we shot it because it would have been set, it would have been it would have been a, a, a the absolute corkscrew of a, of a if it would have said. screwed the movie. But it, it, I but think, do you think it would have screwed the movie? Like given like where we are right now? Yeah, right now I think people want happy endings and I think people want hope and I think people want heroes, especially now. And I think that there you go, Marvel. Like, but You'll seriously, be in like for a long time. we 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 tested both versions, you know, to smaller, you know, like a, a small contingent of people, 
And very quickly we realized that right now I don't think we want to see the bad guy win. We've already seen the bad guy win enough. And this was around the time of the election too. So it was just that moment. But where if I, Stephen Brand's character dies as he does in the movie. Oh, he always dies. Is it is it the same is it now now I'm, now I'm being, you know, devil's advocate. It's like, is it the same if Derek says I took the job because I knew I could do good, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to rewrite the movie, no, no. but I'm like, that, Please I, find do. That, I find that fascinating. No, no, I find that fascinating that you had that ending kind of in your hip pocket. And it's like, and because you, you look at something like Parallax View, it's like, you know, Warren Beatty gets shotgunned at the end. And that's Or Fe- that's French it. Connection, where Popeye Doyle shoots his commissioner and kind of gets away with it. You know, right. but it's an ending that makes you all walk out and going like, and, huh. and you know, Travis Bickle is like, is is she in the back of the car? Does you don't he really know. give her a ride? Who knows? It's it was like, a different time. It was different politics. It was a different perspective and culture. And here it felt like the the world needs a little bit of happiness. And I would rather have people walk out going like, hell yeah, instead of like, Hmm. Right. So it was really it was letting the cultural climate of the moment dictate which ending we did. Right. And we could have gone with both. And honestly, and it's, it's stupid that we didn't put it on the Blu-ray, but that version could have worked. But I think it would have worked if Hillary won, or if right. something else happened, right. or if maybe That's this was three or four years earlier. Yeah. You know, where things were complacent and comfortable. Right. But it was just something that I said, I would rather let the audience tell me how this works and, and what what their response is, yeah. rather than me go, I got to be cool. I got to do my freaking thing, man. And, and just, I'm going to stick it to the, Which the is audience. Smart. Right. And, and I, you know, and I think that prevailed because like every time that we've shown this in festivals, like people like walk out happy and I'm like, you do realize what they've done in this movie, right? Some pretty deplorable shit. And right. yet like everyone walks out like that was fun. And that's kind of what we went for. Well, it's cause, cause it's kind of the working class sticking it to the, you know, of course, which, which, which are, which is a very, Kind of Horatio Alger, you know, up from nothing. Totally. You know. Uh, let's talk about, I don't know how many of you guys noticed this, but I certainly noticed it. Uh, I got a very uh, uh, Paul Brickman vibe in this film. The only person and, who ever called that out. And and and, uh, and it was only it was only solidified by the, the risky business reference. I thought uh, between Steve Moore's score and, and, and some of your shots, I thought, is Joe Lynch doing a kind of a, a homage to Paul Brickman here? Is this a- you're the only person who caught that? Thank you, Joe. That makes me feel thrilled. Uh, maybe two of the other people in this crowd probably went like, "Oh yeah, Brickman." Um, I like. By the way, the guy that got Greg Tolan had no idea. He's like, "I I don't know what the fuck you're talking about." <laughs> He's more of a men don't leave fan, to be honest. Um, uh, I've always been a fan of of Brickman. I mean. The, the thing that I love about Risky Business... Oh, do you guys know Paul Brickman? Everybody knows Paul Brickman. Risky Business and, and Men Don't Leave, which is... Two fantastic yeah, movies. Just yeah. unbelievable. Um, and the thing that Brickman did, and you look at it now, especially when you look back at like Tom Cruise's career, like how he was able to take a script that could have been broad as hell. I mean, you had Curtis you know, from Revenge of the Nerds and Better Off Dead in it, and yet you grounded him. You know, and you had Joey Pants in it, and yet he's menacing. And you have Tom Cruise, who, if you cast someone else, I think the movie would have been a broad comedy. You cast him in it, and you temper his his obsession, and you temper his humanity and what he goes through, and it makes him a star because he's human. And it, like the whole moment when he puts on the sunglasses and and does that killer smile moment that became part of the poster, he had to earn that moment. And right. when I met Steven, I got the same vibe from Steven. Now, you know, I was a huge Walking Dead fan, and still am, 
And there was something about Steven that I loved because, you know, he also had five seasons to pull this off, but he went from kind of a foily, uh, you yeah, know, Glenn, uh, like a, he, yeah. Glenn went from kind of a, a sidekick to his own person, to a hero, a fallen hero, unfortunately, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but it, there was something about him that just felt so much more, he was a human movie star to me. And that was how I felt when I first saw Tom Cruise in Risky Business. And I don't think anyone else but Paul could have been able to balance that performance because if you look at All the Right Moves right after or Top Gun right after that, right. Tom is on another wavelength. And it almost felt like you can feel Paul like right around the corner when he slides across the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the floor. You can almost feel him going like, just a little smaller, just a little, just a little, you know, right. because then it made him a kid who just got allowed the whole house to himself instead of this like right. rock and roll moment, you know, like Brickman knows how to bring humanity into the weirdest of places. And that's what I needed in this movie because if Steven wasn't someone that you could relate to, then he's just a mean spirited prick who just is looking out for right. himself and killing people and, and bashing heads with no moral aplomb whatsoever. And that's something that I learned from Risky Business so much so that like that whole line with like the the quote from the movie, that's just me off camera telling her to say that, you know, because I felt that moment and I felt that moment with Steven. So a lot of I mean, that whole scene with um, Dave Matthews band, that was all improv. Um, that was something that you'll appreciate this. So really quick, we were all so much a tight little team that. The night, so what we would do is we would try to kind of stay ahead of the game. So we knew that we had to go up to the bathroom. We only shot this thing on three floors and we had to kind of redress it about 10 times to make it seem like different floors. So we had to go upstairs and we thought we can kind of get ahead of the game if we pre-light for the next day. And usually you do that with stand-ins. Uh, so Steve and I, the DP, were like, we're going upstairs. And Steven and Samara were like, well, the van's not here yet. Do you want us to hang out? We're like, yes, like they're our friends. So we go upstairs and I threw out as they're standing there and people are futzing with the lights as I go, top three bands go. And we just had this conversation and it was so fascinating, especially having known them for a couple of weeks. They weren't speaking for themselves. They were speaking for their characters because I kind of infused Samara with like, you're a closeted metalhead. Like you, you, you had two brothers and they were totally into Metal Blade records and they just infused you with speed metal. And Steven is more of a 90s guy. He's more of a Deftones and a Faith No More. You know, like you're, you're a product of that. And they just started going off. And that whole Dave Matthews band thing was just Steven kind of being himself. Wow. And I'm watching this going like, mm, this is gold. So I, I jumped in the van, went back to my, my little apartment and wrote out that entire scene, came back the next day with three pages. Now in the script, it says, you know, interior bathrooms, they wait. Next scene. Here it is. I hand them three pages. And I mean, they already kind of knew the conversation, but they looked at it and went, uh-huh, okay, got it. And they did it. And because of that, unfortunately... I had to stalk Dave Matthews' band for about eight months to try to get that goddamn song in there because it just kind of be, it became you got part it. of the you movie. Got it. Which we got it. Like I had to, I, I literally had to stalk. Dave Shocker Matthews. that Dave Matthews didn't need the money right now. I'm just saying, it's, it's great. Well, he was cool enough. Like like you know, Dave and uh, the guys in Faith No More. Yeah, I mean, they're my favorite. For, band, I was listening, so. going, God, is that a is that a Dave Matthews? And I thought, oh no, that's the song. That's the song, and. The, the fact that it's but but the fact that it's a post-coital sex scene song now in a movie yes. is like it's a it's an honor to be honest like like hopefully someday someone will hear that on Jack FM and go 
getting kind of horny. I, I, It'll I, never happen, I, but I, like, I, I hope not, Joe. I hope not. Uh, God, I hope not. Uh, okay, I, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, thank you, brother, for for no, thank, entertaining dude, everyone. Thank you, Joe, because you've been an, an no. inspiration to me. I was gonna for say years, Princeton so. needs a guy like Joe Lynch, but I don't know again who would get that reference. So, uh, but uh, but uh, thank. You. Listen, I love the way I think it's funny as shit, and uh, the fact you made it for my my God, uh, nothing uh, uh, is a testament to how talented you are, and and. Uh, the performances are fantastic, and we didn't get to talk about. All right, really quickly before we have to go, uh, the the okay, two scenes really quick: the spinning scene, yes, and the sex scene. Okay, how do you approach those quickly? Because we have like thirty seconds. Body fluids everywhere. Uh, the 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 spitting scene. We had shot in that that basement. Uh, it was filled with asbestos. We had to kind of like map out our day. And if you're smart, like like we we all are as directors, we're in the guild. We think, well, let's get all the really tough stuff out of the way first, and then we'll leave the two, you know, the the scene with the two people who are just kind of hanging out in the back room and they're just kind of spitting on each other. We'll save that for the end. Uh, well, I had 45 minutes to do all of that stuff with them, like her walking around, him, him, them punching each other two and everything. cameras, single camera? Two cameras the whole time. And my, my, again, my DP, Steve, and I said, well, we had a shot list. And we just kind of, again, went with our gut and just shot that thing. And the spitting thing was always in the script as a litmus test because I wanted to see if whoever we were going out to or whoever was you know up for the role or whatever, eventually something like that is something that usually gets thrown out whether it's in the development stage whether it's like when you cast it even up to the day where someone goes eh, really do i have to never a peep and both of them knew that that was kind of an important thing and they just went with it like first take they're just spin all over each other and it's just they had amazing chemistry they, they literally also have uh, a couple of diseases at this point uh <laughs> But they they were so game and they just went for it. And the same thing with the sex scene. You know, I hate sex scenes that are yeah, like I do too. choreographed. You know, so I wanted to make it sloppy. I wanted them to not even be able to take their clothes off. They're just trying to get genitals through clothing. You know, they, like it, it's a, what a what a sex moment should be. You know, is that like, these pe two people are infected and primal, and they didn't even realize thirty seconds ago they were probably going to be banging. You know, like that, that's just, that's, that's my, that's my excuse with the virus. It's like, well, of course they're infected. Right. Um, but they just went for it and we just had two cameras on it. And I just said, whatever happens, happens, you know, let's, don't worry, like I'll I'll fix it in post. I think, and uh, but it, and that's why it felt like that's so fantastic. choppy. It, that's that's a that's sex. No, it sex works, is man. messy yeah, and it's, choppy. It's, not, it's yeah. not Berlin and blue lights. Sorry, Tony, wherever you are, but it doesn't oh, look Tony. that beautiful. You know, yeah. it's messy and sloppy, just like this movie, and and it felt right. I mean, how how, how better to close it? Sloppy, and messy sloppy sex right. only in DGA one. Everybody, that's right. thank you guys. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. To thank you for so having much. Us. Appreciate it, guys. Good night. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And stay tuned for more episodes, including Alexander Payne's Downsizing, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.